The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Ann Dowsett Johnston, author of Drink, The Intimate Relationship Between Women and Alcohol. Uh, her new book was named one of Washington Post's best books of 2013. Drink takes aim at an alarming epidemic, and it is a very alarming epidemic. The worrisome rise in binge drinking and alcohol abuse among girls and women. She brings to light this statistical evidence and reveals how dangerous levels of female drinking is on the upswing. Uh, precipitated in part by an unmitigated push by the alcohol industry to woo women drinkers from an early age. Um, Anne Dowsett Johnston is the winner of five National Magazine Awards and has been interviewed on many television programs, CTV, Global TV, and is published in the New York Post, and a former vice president of McGill University. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Anne. Great to be here. Thank you. Well, these are startling statistics. It is an alarming epidemic. Um, as you and I just talked briefly about before the show began, a lot of these statistics weren't available to us. Um, it's only been over the past 10 years, I guess, so that we've had this information that the binge drinking and alcohol abuse among girls and women is on the rise, I guess, as well. It continues. Yes, we, you know, let's take a very simple statistic that somewhere between 10 and 15% of breast cancer cases are related to alcohol uh, consumption, and we didn't know that five years ago. So this is something that each and every woman needs to be aware of, needs to know that there are, unlike with cigarettes or tobacco, there's safe drinking levels, and you just have to be very cognizant of what your habits are and make sure that they stay within safe, um, the safe realm. Well, you say excessive drinking is the third leading cause of preventable death in the United States. Yes, uh, it, that, is, that is a fact. And we have seen a very interesting statistic where men are actually flatlining or even dipping in their um, binge drinking, but that isn't the case with women. And there is, as you said, a very huge push on the part of the alcohol industry, which very smartly realized sometime in the mid-1990s that indeed there was a whole gender that was underperforming. Classically, women drink less than men and still do, but we see an alarming rise, especially around professional educated women, those who have gone to university, and a really big spike around those between the ages of 24 and 36 who give birth to 60% of North American babies. 
Well, are these women, why, why do you think, the, I, I guess the first question is, why this trend? I mean, now we have these statistics. Is this because more women are in business? They're professional. They, they are subject to the same stresses that, say, men used to be. I mean, one of the causes of drinking or the excuses for drinking too much or drinking on the job or uh, drinking, at, at, you know, business meetings, those kinds of things. Is that one of the reasons? Although we're talking about young women here, too, not just necessarily professional women. We're talking about both. Right. Say, yeah, binge drinking and right. college. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think the the central reason um, I wrote this book was to ask the why, and we can all say the what, but you know why why is this happening? And I saw three reasons. Number one, I think it's the modern woman's steroid enabling her to do the heavy lifting involved in complex worlds. So you come home from a big day at the office, you're chopping vegetables, you're getting ready to oversee homework, second shift, and you pour yourself a glass of wine. And one glass of wine is fine if it if it stays at that. But it doesn't often stay at that. So it's a decompression tool, number one. Number two, self-medication. So women are 40% more likely to suffer from depression, anxiety than men. And it's um, a legal, easily accessible drug. And there's no doubt that there is a connection between um, those issues. Number three, we drink because we can. We drink because we're marketed to. So you have wines like mummy juice, berry-flavored vodka, um, all sorts of products that, as we know, certainly the Alka Pops, those um, sweet uh, prepackaged um, drinks that are aimed at teenagers. I call them cocktails with training wheels or starter drinks that are there to push young women away from starting uh, early drinkers away from beer into alcohol. So you go to a campus, say, in the States right now, and you find that young women and young men are playing drinking games. She's drinking beer. She's drinking shots, tequila or vodka. You know, she's two-thirds of the size, and she's drinking the stronger beverage, which is not great. Um, we all know that alcohol is the number one date rape drug. So it's not, it's not a pretty picture, and it is what is evolving. So we see a whole industry that has, um, as I say in the book, you know, the pinking of the market. The pinking of the market is very real. Walk into any outlet and you'll see it. You know, as you're uh, describing it to me, I'm thinking, Anne, though, one of the things um, that I want to address is the fact that, well, at least, and I'm not exactly sure when it was not allowed, but they used to advertise alcohol on television here in the States. I know you're in Canada. Now they're not allowed to do that. There mm-hmm. isn't advertising on TV, so there's less advertising. I want you to address that. Yeah. And two, I mean, this is kind of anecdotal, but I'm thinking of myself in college many years ago. We drank a lot. I mean, we sat there with six packs drinking, you know, the kind of drinking that you're describing that young girls do. And I, I think, uh, here's a statistic that's in your book, almost 14 million American girls and women, many who are even still in high school, binge drink roughly three times each month, typically consuming six drinks each time. I would say that was an average statistic, maybe not in <laughs> high school, but in college when yes. I was in college. We all tend to say we did it, we did it too. There's a couple of things I want to address. Number one, um, this kind of advertising, um, the advertising that the marketing that is pitched at young drinkers is not happening on television. It's happening on the internet. Um, it's called poll marketing. You are not sitting on your couch watching uh, your favorite television show. This generation doesn't watch TV like this. They go to their computers 
and they search out Bacardi or Smirnoff, and there is poll marking means they go to the site. They want to join in the community that is re- related to that brand, and before you know it, that brand is communicating to them like an individual, like a person, um, emailing them, Facebook friending them, um, tweeting. And we all know how cheap it is to tweet. So that's that's a, the very um, modern face of alcohol marketing, and it's very real and, and pitched at that generation, number one. Number two, um, this generation doesn't tend to drink and drive the same way that we did. Um, my generation did, but they pre-drink. They pre-drink because it's too expensive to drink at the bar, and so they have... Um, speak to any parent and you will hear about pre-drinking. You know, drink before the party, get smashed before you go out because it's a lot cheaper than drinking at the bar. So they have typically a lot of alcohol around them at, in their university dorms. They have a lot of, um, I call it, um, efficient drinking, drinking to, um, get, get drunk. We drank a lot of, when I went to university, drank a lot of beer. Um, this is drinking a lot, a lot of hard liquor. We did not do that. This is a completely different picture. Maybe, maybe you did. It, it is just um, a very curious spike that's happening. And what's interesting is this cohort is not slowing down. They're not slowing down after they graduate from university. That was the classic picture, is that, you know, it was seen as a quote-unquote harmless rite of passage, which it isn't for everybody, and then slow down. Well, this generation is not slowing down when they move on to professional life. Well, I think with women, and, and, uh, and I think you're describing it, yes, it was a rite of passage. You drank a lot in college, then you had your babies, and you kind of stopped, or you right. didn't obviously drink the same way you did. But now, I think there's a social aspect to this, and maybe you address this in the book, but women have a lot more opportunities to go to bars by themselves with other women. You know, the social structure has changed, so they, can, they have access to that environment. Maybe 30 years ago, women didn't go to bars alone. They went with a, a, par, a man or a date, but that's not true now. So they, I think that changes kind of the, the, the uh, social uh, realm as well. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that there is a real sense of um, I can do everything. There's also uh, I can do everything that a man does, therefore I will unwind with a drink at the end of the day. There's, you know, you can't place it all at the feet of Sarah Jessica Parker and and the, the women from Sex in the City. But if you look at, and there have been studies looking at, you know, the most popular television shows and the rise of um, images of women and drinking, or you've got Kathy Lee sitting there at 10 in the morning with her glass of wine on television. This is a much more common equal opportunity. I drink because I can. I call it um, Virginia Slims in a bottle, which is not my phrase picked up from somebody else, but it's a, it's a good phrase. It's exactly what happened with Virginia Slims in tobacco, which is an aiming at this gender and a very clear um, uptick. I mean, talk about book clubs, talk about girls' weekends, talk about, you know, it is understood, talk about the two martini play date. Um, it is seen as, or, or the wine at the baby shower. Um, the culture is, we live in an alcogenic culture, and we are, I think, awash in marketing and to the degree that we almost don't see it. 
bachelorette parties, I think you can add to that. Now, all these young women who are getting married uh, have the same kind of or a similar kind of party. Men used to have these bachelor parties before the, they got married. And That's now right. I see all the young, they go away for a weekend of mm-hmm. fun, drinking, doing whatever they do before they get married. That's right. another trend. Right. That's a huge trend. And, and my son's 29, and a lot of his friends are, in fact, um, you know, involved. The, the young women are doing exactly what you're saying. I'm having, having weekends. And now over in the U.K. where young women are dying of end-stage liver disease in their 20s, where alcohol is often in grocery stores cheaper than um, water or milk or orange juice, so really low pricing. Um, we, we see young women taking uh, weekend trips up to Scotland where they are, you know, doing basically alcohol tourism, where they're going for the weekend and, and getting completely blind drunk. And um, it's, it's something that many people are commenting on. The so you're saying that, this is, a, and I guess maybe we should define it, this is not just obviously in the United States. We're talking about a global problem with this age group. Um, what's, you mentioned drunkorexia. What is that? Drunkorexia is on the rise, and it's a mixture of um, uh, food um, issues, um, so anorexia, bulimia, um, food disorders, eating disorders, excuse me, and um, drinking too much. So you save all your calories for alcohol, and it's an extremely dangerous um, practice. It's extremely dangerous if you are an anorexic. If you are saving all your calories for alcohol and are not ingesting, obviously, um, food, you know, it can be deadly, and it is on the rise. And classically, young women that I interview say, no, no, I would never eat before a date. I, I don't want to look fat. So... Drinking on an empty stomach, drinking vodka and tequila on an empty stomach, and we know from some of the very high-profile cases that have happened in in, uh, recent years, certainly a very um, high-profile one out of California, a big one out of Canada where young women end up being sexually compromised in Facebook pictures and then taking their own lives. So there are many, many alarming trends that are coming out of... um, this reality of women drinking, uh, quote-unquote, efficiently. And the, the difference between men and women in terms of the impact of alcohol on their system, let's talk about that. I mean, because it is different. Women's bodies metabolize the alcohol mm-hmm. differently. And so can, can we have a little bit of a discussion about that? Because I think that's important. Yeah, that's huge. I mean, democratically we're equal, but metabolically and hormonally we really aren't when it comes to alcohol. And we don't metabolize the same way. Um, telescoping is real, and telescoping means we become addicted much faster than men. Um, we develop end-stage liver disease much, much faster. We develop cognitive deficits much faster. It is a deadlier drug for us, and it isn't just a matter of body size. It's also, just as you said, how we metabolize um, the product. And it's something I think that, you know, we did end up having a mature conversation, public conversation about alcohol. I don't, or excuse me, about tobacco, but we haven't about alcohol. And I think it's because it's how we relax and reward. We associate it with fun events, New Year's and and parties and weddings, et cetera, and we don't um, want to hear about the downside, but it is a matter of just simple education. I think, you know, if you can count your drinks and keep it to nine a week, 
if you're female, then you're just fine. And if you if you can manage that, terrific. But count them. I mean, count them out. And um, you know, there there is an awful lot of attention, as I said, um, Skinny Girl Vodka, Skinny Girl Products, um, at pitching at women. Um, be alert. Be alert, and that's what I say to young women in high school. Just know that you are in the in the you know target of the marketers, and just be aware. So you have to be and know that you are at risk. And um, you know, one of the I guess you may call this jargon, but mindful drinking. You know, we do mindful eating, or we try to. Uh, or you know, as and I think as you keep mentioning, you know, women are always watching their calories. We have to really be mindful of what we drink and and watch. What did you say? Nine drinks a week, and, and you're probably in pretty good shape. Yeah. Um, yeah. But there's a lot of denial associated with drinking. There always has been, mm-hmm. I think. And uh, whether one is a full blown alcoholic or a problem drinker or however you want to define it, I mean, that's been my experience uh, as a social worker working in a in a in a in a clinic actually um, for. Uh, men and women who are addicted to alcohol but this this whole issue of denial how do we overcome that and 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 things get so stressful as you say and the alcohol is available and it is there uh both in your own home and at a bar and, and wherever you go actually so um I guess we've. I want to make sure that we've covered the statistics in terms of how important it is for us to at least become aware of the problem. Um, and, and one statistic that we didn't mention, mm-hmm. uh, and you say it's a conservative estimate in your book, um, that alcohol or drink is responsible for roughly 23,000 deaths of American girls and women each year. So if we accept that statistic, we do have a problem so now getting back to my question, what do we do about it? I think what we, we do about it is we start to educate. And when I say nine drinks a week, that means never more than two drinks on one occasion. So don't save up that nine for the weekend and say you're fine. You are not fine. For a woman, woman it's never t- more than two drinks on any one occasion, which to a lot of people, I mean, what is a binge? Binge is four drinks in two hours and for a woman and five for a man. Just know your numbers. Know when you're going to be in trouble. Know that, you know, I think these, the, this deserves a public conversation and certainly a public conversation with young people to be aware of, of how much they're being targeted. What we, what we need to do and be very alert to, and I mentioned it about the UK, is, but also um, be alert in terms of the United States is the fact that um, it isn't the alcoholic that you have to be concerned with necessarily. Um, we all know someone who's gotten into trouble with alcohol. I certainly did in my 50s, self-medicating depression. But you, um, more than 80% of us drink socially over the age of 15. And the, it's, it's the um, binge drinking of the non-alcoholic, the non-addicted that is Problematic. The person who gets into trouble. It's the fact that we do live in an alcoholic culture. Alcohol in the United States is extremely cheap. It is available in many states in the gas stations, available everywhere, and it is enormously cheap, enormously um, low priced. And uh, price is related, and marketing is related to how we consume. And we have to be aware of what. That some of the best um, uh, research on 
on policy is coming out of the United States. A man like David Jernigan at the at uh, Johns Hopkins University doing amazing work on marketing and marketing to youth. And you are, as we are in Canada, very, very um, highly educated in terms of what the levers are in terms of changing public behavior. And too much marketing, too much marketing on the Internet, low price of product, too much availability of the product, all of this changes how we behave as a society. And well, I, think I have to we say, have to Anna, be alert. I am very, until obviously uh, reading your book, but I've been very naive about the marketing, I guess, because uh, on the Internet uh, and the way it's done, as mm-hmm. you mentioned earlier in the show, marketing on the Internet, marketing drinking, marketing alcohol to this younger population. Because mm-hmm. that's, uh, that, that's a, I mean, obviously, that's a huge audience, uh, a huge market, obviously, for the business. But also seniors, and you mentioned you self-medicated in your 50s Mm -hmm. as a result of depression, and I think that, too, is becoming more common, particularly among women. It's a huge problem in assisted living facilities and even nursing homes where seniors are self-medicating. You're right, and we deal with the issues of, of the prevalence of falls, and often it's associated with alcohol with seniors. Um, certainly loneliness, self-medicating loneliness, that's very common with elderly men and women, and it's something that we have to have an open adult conversation about. Um, this is your, your right to cite it. I notice that in almost every situation where I'm doing um, a public talk, People are very interested in focusing on the drinking habits of youth, but rarely interested in talking about their own drinking habits or those of older people. And this is something right now that is of concern right through our culture, of, you know, in terms of all ages. And aging, the aging population is not immune. What's been the response? When, I mean, you're, gonna, you're in the public, you're out there, as you say, educating people is obviously one of your mission or your goal. So when you do that in public forums, what kind of a response do you get? What are you getting from either educators, teachers, the kids themselves, or even the seniors? The kids themselves are fascinating. They say we should be educated about this in grade four or five. They, they say, you know, we're told about sex, we're told about drugs, we should be told about these issues, especially the marketing piece. They're fascinated by it. They want to know earlier. They really do want to know earlier. And, you know, I spoke to a classroom recently and said, how many of you are dealing at home with someone who is drinking too much? And almost the whole class put up their hand. So they're not naive. We live in a culture where a lot of people drink, and how your parents drink influences how you will drink. So this is something um, where, as I said, that often people want to talk about youth drinking, and they, marked by denial, do not want to talk about their own, do not want to talk about the, those of older people. But this is a cultural issue. Um, so there's huge appetite to talk about it. There's been the book's a bestseller in Canada and a very um, available internationally, and it tells the story of multiple women from the ages of 16 up to 85. That would be my mother, um, who have had alcohol issues. Um, but it talks about the global um, problem as well, and. Frankly, the richer the country, the narrower the gap between men and women. Something is unfolding that even epidemiologists are scratching their head about. We are drinking at a different level, and it's fascinating. I think one of the things we have to be aware of, at least in my experience, is 
not getting into the all or nothing thing. I know at least, in, and I'll speak, I think, in, 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 in the United States, uh, you know, the, the, we, we've listed these, you know, alarming statistics, and then you get people on the bandwagon, well, nobody should be drinking, and you have to treat, uh, you know, have to teach abstinence, which really doesn't get us anywhere, and I don't think that's obviously what you're saying. We need to, if, you know, you, we need to understand what responsible drinking is. And I think I want to make that clear because I think when you get into the all or nothing, then you really don't get too far, especially with young people, even not necessarily just with young people, but even with that gamut of 16 to 85. I, I'm so glad you said that. I'm, I am certainly no prohibitionist. I crossed a line with my own drinking in my 50s where I would not go back. But for most people, I think it's a wonderful substance to be enjoyed and used properly. And just, you know, we know all about the dangers of tanning beds and trans fats, and we just haven't had a proper education, public conversation about this. It's very, very simple. It's very, very simple. It's connected to all sorts of things that are difficult. We just have to talk properly about it and be well educated about it. But it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful substance and a wonderful substance to be celebrated. And if you can, if you can celebrate um, responsibly, perfect. What about you? We have only a few minutes left, um, but just you know, you talk about you cross the line. Can you give us some insight into what made you? realize that you would cross the line and, and, and obviously were able to, to take control of your drinking. Yeah, a, a cousin of mine was killed by a drunk driver and my mother had been a severe alcoholic and I looked up after Dougie died and said, I have to um, stop drinking. I lost my childhood to drinking alcohol. I lost my cousin Doug and I have to stop myself and I found I couldn't. And I um, I took a sledgehammer. I went to the United States for uh, treatment and quit drinking and haven't had a drink for more than five years. And it's it's tough. New sobriety is not for the faint of heart, but it is worth it. And I have a very um, a very happy life now and wouldn't risk drinking again. And I guess my my biggest message is if you haven't crossed that line, don't cross it. It is. It is not worth going there. But I also realized in the writing of the book that I am indeed the poster girl for, you know, professional, high bottom, highly educated. Um, And much as my mother was a sort of Betty Ford mixing Valium with cocktails, stay-at-home mom, I I am the face of the new alcoholic, and she is female. Well, you're certainly the person, the spokesperson, the appropriate, the spokesperson for uh, for, for uh, actually educating the public and uh, through your book and obviously through all the other work that you do. I mean, I, I can identify with, with you in terms of smoking. I'm very, I was a very heavy smoker in my 20s. Mm-hmm. And then at 30, when I got pregnant, I stopped smoking and I haven't had another cigarette since. But if I did, I think it's very similar to your alcohol situation. I, I mean, I liked it. I'm not one of those people who can't stand the smell of smoke. So I would never, you know, take another cigarette again. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, so it's not easy. Probably easier not to smoke because not as many people are smoking. But alcohol is associated with so, you know, as you mentioned, with, you know, all, most social events, if not all, are associated with some kind of drinking, a glass of wine, or, you know, whatever. Yes, it's a very tough sub, a tough substance to give up in our culture and walk into any party and you will be asked red or white before you're almost asked 
anything else. So do people try to force you? I notice that. I'm always looking uh, when someone says, no, I don't want to drink. Uh, very often, you know, you'll hear the host or the hostess say, well, just have a glass of wine or, you know, trying to force it on you. And if so, what do you do? Yeah, you, you always have a drink in your hand. You, you walk in, get yourself a, whatever it is you drink other than, other than alcohol, and you have a drink in your hand, and, and you just start firm. But, but it is the truth. People will try and force you to have a drink, and, and it's usually those that have a problem with drinking themselves. Most people actually couldn't care less whether you drink or, or, you, or you don't, but there is always someone that will be asking you um, why you don't. And, you know, the most common question I get is, I drink too much, I'm an alcoholic, and my answer is always get up in the morning and make a vow as to what you're doing that day. If you can keep your promise, you know, for a week, for a month, then you probably aren't. An alcoholic cannot control um, their behavior, and it's um, it's somewhere you don't want to go, believe me. So, yep. you know, I think safe behavior is, is wise. Well, where we do want people to go is to read your book, and we have to say goodbye. And the name of the book, again, is Drink, The Intimate Relationship Between Women and Alcohol and Dowsett Johnston. Thanks so much for being on the show. You were really very enlightening. Thanks. Okay. Yeah, great to have you. Uh, We're going to take a short break right now. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you are listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Now there's a new destination for video content. VoiceAmerica.tv. Just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7. VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. There is a species that remains undiscovered by modern science. This species is known by many names, but most commonly known as Bigfoot. Join Todd Standing and Dr. Jeff Meldrum for Bigfoot North, a program that sets out to uncover the species that has eluded modern science, but that does truly exist. Expert and celebrity guests will be on hand to discuss both the scientific evidence and conclusive fact of the species on this planet. Bigfoot North airs live every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Time, 8 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is author social worker Lisa Mazio. Her new book is Who Can Catch the Moon? Heartfelt, Humorous, and Compelling Stories of Resiliency in Society's Most Vulnerable Children. 
Uh, well, Lisa has been in the social work field and wor- working with children and youth in the foster care system for over 30 years. Um, what she does in her book, she takes readers on a journey inside the system and shows us the children and families that the system touches. Um, and uh, unfortunately, the outcome of many of these youth that leave foster care without a family are truly abysmal. Uh, many end up homeless, in jail, unemployed, and often suffering from mental illness. Welcome to the show, Lisa. Nice to have you on this morning. Thank you very much. Well, as we said before the show, we're talking social worker to social worker, although my experience, I have had very little, really, if any, experience in the foster care system. So that's why I'm really interested, obviously, in your book and and you, uh, because it isn't it. It's a horrific situation. I don't know. What are the numbers? In ter- who are we talking about in terms of numbers, these kids in foster care who, who uh, end up in I, this? Yeah. I wouldn't even be able to give a number. Yeah. Uh, the state of Connecticut does update it regularly, but I know that there is a tremendous increase just over the last year of children in Connecticut's foster care system, and my assumption is that's probably a national average. Yeah, I think it's getting worse and worse. I'm not familiar with Connecticut, but I know in New York or New York City, it's a huge problem. Um, so, so where do we start? I mean, your stories are really. I mean, I was, and a couple of them when I was, I was crying. Oh, good! Um, I, yes. I did what I was supposed to. <laughs> you, yeah, you did. You, you, you accomplished your goal. Absolutely right. But. Uh, these children, um, why read the book? Why? I mean, this book is not just for social workers. It's also for all of us, for the general public. We all need to be made aware and be informed. So um, why would you say this book is important for, for all of us to read? I think, um, generally speaking, it's a book that touches upon a lot of things, and it touches upon development, basic child development, and what even what you would consider, quote, a healthy child needs in order to reach their self-potential. For social work and people who are just interested in children, I think that um, it's a book that really helps you understand the foster care system. What society knows about the system comes through lifetime uh, movies, I think, and that sensationalizes the real life more than I would like to see. All right, let's talk about the real life, what actually happens. And wasn't the foster care system initially, I don't want to get off on a tangent, it was kind of kind of a Band-Aid effect, what, 40 years ago, or, you know, I'm not exactly sure of the time span. It wasn't supposed to be something that was to go on and on. It was kind of like kids who were taken out of abused families, they would put it in a foster home, um, but it, there were supposed to be other solutions, but we never really got there. Is that I think on that's target? true, and I think we still try to get there because we understand that children shouldn't linger in a system and shouldn't linger without a plan. So back in the day when foster care was created, I think it was supposed to be to just get children out of a harmful situation, and then provide services to families so children could ultimately go back. But that didn't mm-hmm. happen. Okay. That, or it hasn't you know, happened. it doesn't always happen, and there's a host of reasons why that doesn't always happen. But I, I believe that our foster care system is in the right direction because we're not allowing children to linger. And where they might not go 
back home to their birth families, we're trying to find families where they could actually grow up, and that's the goal. And does that actually, okay, that's the goal. How often does that happen? Because you read about and you talk about in your book as well, these kids who are in 8, 10, 12 different homes, they just go from place to place. Is that the norm or is that something that's hopefully is not the norm and that you are able to place kids in foster care and then what happens? Best case scenario. The best case scenario is a child needs foster care and they need it temporarily, and then they go back home to birth family. Right. And they need foster care. Why? For those of us who are not social workers, why, why, put them in a, why get them into the foster care system? Because it's usually deemed by a court system and the State Department of Child Welfare that going back home would be too dangerous and a child would not be able to remain safe under the birth family care. So that's the main reason. Um, why children linger in the system is because the courts have to give birth parents an appropriate amount of time to try to get it together in order to get their kids home. That doesn't always happen in a timely fashion, and then perhaps cases get held up in court for one reason or another. I mean, it's not for a lack of trying, but I think then our, a year in our life is quite different than a year in a child's life. And we always are trying to push the system to make decisions, make a move. So once a decision is made, i.e., the child will return home or the child will remain in a long-term foster home or the child will be adopted. It's usually one of the three depending on the age and needs of the child. And the best-case scenario in foster care is that you place once and then the child stays in that home and makes the connections that they need to. Okay. So we have a bureaucratic system that doesn't always work in the best interest of the child for a lot of different reasons. But let's talk about foster care kids and kids raised in, I don't like to use the word normal because social workers don't usually use that word, but in more stable environments. And what is the difference? And then what's the difference between a foster care parent and just the regular parent who is parenting their kids in a you know average household. So you know so because in your book you you talk about significant differences. Let's take the the child first, a kid who's been in foster care or been in a couple homes or has come from uh, uh, as you're describing a, a biological family that that isn't taking care of them properly. There's a difference in that kid developmentally between the kid who's in a, a stable environment. There is, because when you're in your birth family, your connections to those people are lifelong connections. And whether they're, you know, as healthy as we would like them to be is, is one thing. And it's not even a judgmental statement. It's, you know, people are raised differently. What we're talking about here is just a safety aspect. And if you're with the same people all of your life, then you learn how to have relationships with people because they're there and they're constant. When you're changed and you're moved and you go to school one day and you expect to come home and what happens is you're placed in foster care, your brain constitution actually changes because you're dealing with trauma after trauma after trauma and after a while that, that really wreaks havoc on your development. So when we're talking with foster parents 
especially new foster parents, we're always teaching them the effects of trauma and abuse on a child's development because it has a huge effect. And if you're going to parent your child one way and if you've been successful, it doesn't really mean that parenting our children in that same way is going to be as successful because they've had different experiences. About yeah, that. I think one example that you give in the book that sort of stood out for me was that uh, in, in terms of foster parenting being different, if you have a child who has, under, has uh, suffered from sexual abuse, you can't run up to that child and give him a hug like you would a child who has grown up in a much healthier environment. Exactly. And I think that those are the things because society sees a hug as a very nurturing sign of affection. With the kids that we are parenting, that's not affection. That's like, oh, my goodness, what are they going to do next? And it's that kind of reminder and education that we're doing, you know, 24 hours a day, every day of our lives, just to help people understand that it's not just love that's going to cure these kids. It's much more than that. Lisa, what kind of training do foster care parents get? And maybe before that, I should say, what's usually the motivation for being a foster care parent? I think the motivation is is that generally people have a really good heart, and they have felt successful in some form of parenting in their life, whether it's their own birth children or, you know, nieces, nephews. They felt successful in that role. And they figure, I can do this, let me just, you know, help another child. So they come in, and that's just the beginning. You know, their motivation is a very good start, but it's just a start. And then we give them several hours in the upwards of, like, 50 hours of training prior to even getting some of the kids in our system. And then it's ongoing, necessary training every year just to uh, maintain their foster care license. You talk about resiliency because that's one of the main, I think, characteristics of those who can overcome the odds, which these kids, I, you know, I think do, obviously. So resiliency seems to be the key. And, and in this context, what does it mean? To me, resiliency is your ability to get above and beyond horrendous circumstances in your life. And as I mentioned in the book, I think just generally people are born with a certain level of resiliency. And then I think resiliency is created, and it's created by people who really take an interest in you and tell you that you can do it and life will be okay despite the odds. And that's been my working definition of it and actually what inspired the writing of this book. And, and inspired the title of the book, because we didn't talk about that in the beginning. Who Can Catch the Moon? Where did the title of the book come from? The title of the book came from my experience in having to move a child to his 11th foster home. And he was very young at the time. And child welfare workers, at least from my experience, we always grapple with the, oh my God, we have to do this again thing. And you need to explain to children. So this particular evening, I was explaining to the young boy why we had to go to another foster home. And I'm panicking, and I have all my anxiety, and I said to him, do you have any questions about what I just said? And he said, yeah, just one. And I said, what is it? He said, who can catch the moon? 
And it almost stopped me dead in my tracks because I had to think about for a minute what that meant. And what I determined its meaning was that this kid was more resilient than I had thought. And I think he was resilient because even in all of the bad experiences, he had some people who were giving him good experiences also. So it can be that one person, and you don't know who that is, in the midst of all the chaos and the horrific experiences these kids have, but it can can be an individual who saves them, I guess, or, or who provides or creates that resiliency so that they can make, obviously, better choices and be able to trust. I think that's another word that comes up, you know, this whole the issue of mi- mistrusting because uh, w- with the foster care kids. Um, and how can you trust? Well, that's it because, you know, and it gets back to your earlier question about the difference between being raised in your biological family versus in other placements. You do learn to trust people after a while because you sort of predict their every move and you know that what they say they mean and et cetera. So when you have kids in foster care and trust is like a ha-ha, sure, I'm going to trust you. Every single person has told me different things or said one thing and then behaved in a totally different way. So with the resiliency piece, I think it really is one or two people, adults, who are a beacon of light and who actually, you know, show a kid I'm bigger than you and I'm stronger than you and I'm going to protect you because I think you're worth it and because I think you're valuable. So all these years of research, and I summed it up in like one sentence. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about some of those kids who aren't resilient, who don't have that experience you just described, the ones who end up homeless in jail, unemployed, and suffering from mental illness, which I mentioned in the beginning, because there are a lot of kids like that. What is there anything we can do? Well, we as the general, yeah. You as the general public, yeah, I think that it's if you have the ability to be a mentor to somebody to really, you know, show a child that they're special and that they're worth it despite, I think that's a big help. I think being an advocate for kids who probably are less fortunate is a huge help. And as I mentioned at the very end of the book, you know, mental health is a big issue. And that's an issue that continues to get underfunded. And, um, you know, our whole system, it's not always the best mental health services for kids. And this isn't like a criticism as much as it is these are the areas that we still have to work in. We have to get better in providing early mental health education for kids to give them a fighting chance. Well, as I understand it, you were appointed by the Senate Minority Leader Senator John McKinney to the State's Commission on Nonprofit Health and Human Services, so I assume that's what you're doing. Well, that was, that was really part of a larger picture of trying to figure out how the state spends money in what different arenas and how to better spend the money that we have. So it covered a lot of different topics, not just the mental health piece. Well, where do we go from here? I guess that's, that, that's you know, I still get back to, uh, I think maybe when we finish the interview, I want to look up some of these statistics because, and I know they're different in different states, um, and are, in, in terms of foster care, are there any states that, 
in your experience or your understanding that do better than others in terms of the foster care system? I think New York and and Connecticut do tremendously well as far as foster care. We're innovative. Um, The state of New York actually ran a program before the state of Connecticut did as far as taking kids out of residential treatment facilities. And that is a place where kids go who they live in like a congregate care and they get all their treatment and schooling right from this one roof. So we came to realize that children grow much better in families than they do living in that kind of setup where, you know, shared responsibility for kids. There's a lot of different adults. And New York started a couple years, about probably three, four, five years ago. Connecticut started this two years ago following New York's um, system. And it's worked we're getting a lot of our kids out of the residential treatment and we're getting them in families and that's where they need to be. That's where the healing occurs. And, you know, you talk about that's where the healing occurs. I think sometimes foster parents get a bad rap as well. You know, when you watch those lifetime shows on television and stuff, um, you know, that they're in it just for the money. Um, you know, that's kind of like you, you somehow that you hear that often um, and I think a second piece of that would be what, how do you know or is there any way to predict whether or not you will be a good foster care parent before you even get into it? Because obviously, you know, you take, it's a huge choice, responsibility to take a, a young person into your house and then have to sit, realize that, hey, I'm not cut out to do this. So mm-hmm. it seems to me there has to be a lot of self-examination and awareness before you do it. You know, there's a whole, aside from that training that I talked about earlier, there's a whole home study process that occurs. And during that home study process, we really are making the assessment on whether the people are going to be good at this job. It's not to say they, they're not good parents. It's to say that they might not be flexible enough, uh, willing to learn enough, because this is all about parenting differently than you parent biological children. Mm-hmm. So good intentions are not enough. It's not just enough to want to care for, love, and nurture somebody. It has to really go beyond that, right? It really does. It's it's an educational piece. Um, you enter foster care because you really want to help a child, and I guarantee it, you leave foster care a different person because your experiences are probably nothing like we could have ever trained and nothing like we could have ever explained, but we do the best we can. Lisa, do foster care parents have to be, uh, um, um, you know, two parents, or can a single person uh, be a foster parent? We have several single foster parents um, because... You know, lots of people, they have different support systems, and it's really about who's going to help you out. Um, You know, the whole it takes a village is a cliche, but it's really very true in this situation because our kids will burn you out. They're very needy, and they, they require a lot of attention. So we're always looking, if you're coming in, who's your support system? Has your extended family embraced this idea along with you? Are they going to be there to help you? Because these are all the things that are going to tell us whether it's going to be successful or not. 
So the village can be made up of, uh, it, the village doesn't have to be defined, but there has to be a village is what you're saying. There it has really to be, does. Yeah, but it could be, um, it, could, it could be all kinds of, or different kinds of combinations. And so that's something that obviously the, the social workers um, have to um, analyze. Uh, are the social workers usually MSWs or are they DSWs? Or sometimes, you know, you read the, the sensational stuff in the newspaper is that they're just people who, you know, they, they get government jobs and they go in there, but they're not actually licensed social workers. And they're, so, but they're doing these evaluations of families, whether or not they're suitable for foster care, foster parenting. The hope is that um, agencies are moving to hiring MSWs for this position. Because it, it's a very important position, and you're going in and you're really deeming the safety of children, and you can't look at that lightly, and you have to have some form of education and ability to make an assessment. And then, you know, foster care is many different levels, and the states typically have their own mandates on what they need to do to protect children. And then there's private agencies like the one I currently work in, and we get the foster homes, we provide all the services that families need. Um, we're the ones who are really kind of in it with them as, as they're going along this journey. And yeah, well, we are I, I, all MSWs, yeah. Yeah, and I, and I think it's so important to kind of reiterate that because, you know, when something goes bad and some horrific thing happens, the media... Uh, sort of attaches itself to that, and then social workers become like the, the 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 horrible person, the evil person who didn't protect the child, and it kind of leaves all the good stuff, you know, in the background, and all the, the you know the, the. So I think it's really important to emphasize that what you're doing, but um, because they kind of like, uh, you know, that's one thing I think that that unfortunately is very common with the media. You know, if a child gets hurt or killed or something horrendous happens, they go after the social workers. They really do. I mean, and and you and I both know that it's one of those fields that you are kind of in the public eye, so you're going to get some of the flack for it. However, it's the same thing having what you had mentioned earlier about foster parents. We only seem to hear about the situations that go really wrong, and that's what gets blown up in the media in my 30 years, if I met a handful of people who did not do it for all the right reasons, that would be saying a lot. Well, you just that, said a lot. I mean, you've had 30 years of experience, um, and I think that's we only have a couple minutes left, but I'm glad you kind of ended with that one because that's a lot of experiences to be and to be able to say that, that <clears throat> there's just a handful that uh, that really were not right or that didn't work out. Uh, I want, the book I want to obviously mention that again. Who can catch the moon? And uh, Lisa is. Uh, Mazio, who's a social worker, is the author. And uh, Lisa, where can we go to online to get more information? You can buy the book online, bookstores everywhere, but more information about what you're doing about foster care. Good resources. Well, you could always go under um, uh, the Annie E. Casey Foundation. They did a considerable amount of work on foster care, and they have a big research department. And then there's various agencies in your state. Just even the state agencies will have websites that talk about your specific state and what the numbers are like and what you can do to become a foster parent. Terrific. It's been great having you on the show today. Um, I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, social worker to social worker. Um, <laughs> 
And uh, who can catch the moon? Lisa Mazio, thanks so much. I'm Catherine Sox, your social worker with the microphone. We have to say goodbye. Hope you have a great week, and uh, we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.